0: My son just leaned over and said, good luck. (laughs) I don't know what that means. (laughs) If you have your Bibles, you open up to Luke chapter 11. Our series in the Gospel of Luke brings us to an important passage about the kingdom of God and the allegiance of our hearts. Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 28 is where we're going to be this morning. So if you would, please follow along with me as we read together from the Scriptures. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus, beginning in verse 14. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to My house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. As He said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to Him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But Jesus said, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask for Your help now that You would give us ears of faith. We hear from Jesus that blessing and life are found in hearing the Word of God, believing it, keeping it, and obeying it. We pray for that grace among us today. God, keep me from error. Help me to be faithful to Your Word. Help us as a church to remain faithful to what You have spoken. We know, Father, that Your people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We want to live today, God. So open our ears to hear, we ask. In Jesus' name, Amen. Whose side is Jesus on? That's the question that stirs up the crowd here in Luke chapter 11. In the great spiritual battle that is raging in this world, whose side is Jesus on? The crowd here in Luke chapter 11 is divided in response to Jesus. It's clear, as verse 14 tells us, that Jesus possesses incredible power, incredible authority nearly everywhere He goes. He's casting out demons, healing the sick, and subduing the creation. He's doing all sorts of mighty deeds. All things that cannot be ignored. You have to reckon with this man Jesus. And yet, the crowd remains divided. The people are uncertain as to what to think about Him. And in this passage, their questions grow more forceful. Whose side is Jesus on anyway? Is He an emissary from God who works with divine power? Or is He an agent of the evil one? And therefore, someone to be doubted and ultimately rejected. The crowd can see the miracles, but they're divided as to what they mean. And so they question Him. Whose side are you on anyway? Jesus but in reality, friends, the, cr- the crowd has the question backwards. This, this is the hinge for understanding this text. It's absolutely true that Jesus' ministry demands an explanation. His, his deeds are too remarkable to ignore. And therein lies the problem for the crowd. It's not Jesus who needs to answer for Himself. The question is not whose side is Jesus on. That answer has been plainly given. Now, the question of the moment in Luke chapter 11 is much more urgent, it's more personal. Whose side are you on? That's the question. Whose side are you on? Are you with Jesus, trusting in His Word and depending on Him alone to rescue you from this present evil age? Or like the crowd, are you foolishly content to question Jesus, argue with Him, Even accuse him, despite the fact that the truth of who he is is plainly revealed in front of your face. That's the crux of the passage. That's the hinge of this text. God's word always demands a response from us, and the response that it demands today is answer this question in the great spiritual battle of the age: whose side are you on? Are you with Jesus or are you opposed to him? That's the question. As we look at the details of the text, I want you to see how the passage as a whole leads us to ask that particular question. At first glance, you might think that the events of this text are a bit random. We go from Beelzebul to spirits in waterless places to a woman shouting about how great Jesus' mother is. It's, it seems like a hodgepodge of stuff. But if we pay attention to the structure, we can begin to see how the parts work together to bring us to reflect upon that key question that we noted just a moment ago. So let's take a minute and just look at the big picture and notice how the passage flows together through all of its parts. First of all, there's a controversy in verses 14-23. to You see it there? There's a controversy over the question of spiritual authority. That's the setup for the passage. What kind of authority does Jesus have? Is it from God or not? There's a controversy. Then there is some commentary in verses 24-26 to that explains the nature of spiritual authority in a person's life. The human heart, Jesus says, is like a house. And the key question is, who is living in your house? Whose power resides in your heart? So a controversy, then some commentary, and then finally there's a correction in verses 27 and 28, where Jesus highlights the right response to Him. It's not enough to agree that Jesus is really great. You also need to submit to Him through His Word. So you see how that structure helps identify the theme. The controversy focuses us on the key point, spiritual authority. The commentary tells you to respond. And then the correction tells you what that response ought to be. You see, it's a masterful presentation of the truth about Jesus and also of the urgency in your life and mine to respond to Him and to do so now. So with that structure in mind, let's work through those different portions of the passage. Remember, anytime we're preaching, we want the point of the passage to be the point of the sermon. So there's there's three parts to this passage. Meaning, there's three truths that we ought to note together here from Luke chapter 11. First, from the controversy in verses 14 to 23, we see the revelation of kingdom authority. The revelation of kingdom authority. Jesus performs a mighty deed in verse 14. He casts out an unclean spirit that has made a man mute. Luke doesn't go into detail about the, the miracle because the focus is not on the miracle. <laughs> but still, we should note here, just in passing, the powerful simplicity of Jesus' act. He doesn't use any magical formulas. He doesn't engage in some elaborate ritual without any opposition whatsoever. Jesus drives out the demonic spirit. The simplicity of that, friends, is the key. There is an unseen spiritual realm in this world. Just to answer the big question that everybody has, are demons real? Yes! Do they oppress people? Yes! There is an unseen spiritual realm. There are forces of darkness that wreak havoc in people's lives. But in the end, Jesus reigns over all of them. And it's not even hard for Him. In the great spiritual battle of our age, Jesus has no rivals. With just His Word, He says, get out, and the Spirit goes. But here in Luke 11, not everyone is impressed by that. Not everyone sees the truth. Some people marvel. That's true. Verse 14. But Luke also describes this growing opposition to Jesus. You can see it in verse 15. Some people in the crowd accuse Jesus of being a servant of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Friends, that's blasphemy. It's a blasphemous accusation. Beelzebul is another name for Satan, the evil one. So think of the perverse audacity it takes to suggest that the author of life is a servant of the devil. That's what the people are saying. Here they have the Creator, the Word made flesh, standing in front of them, and instead of submitting to Him, they accuse Him of being an agent of evil. It's blasphemous and it's wicked. The crowd's not finished though. Notice verse 16, where some people demand that Jesus perform a sign from heaven. (laughs) You should notice the irony there. What did Jesus just do in verse 14? He just did a sign from heaven. (laughs) He just performed a mighty deed by driving out the unclean spirit. But that wasn't enough for some people in the crowd. They want a sign. And by a sign, they mean something that will eliminate the need for faith. They want something that meets their definition and conforms to their standard. That's the main issue with the crowd in verse 16. They think Jesus ought to serve them. We'll believe you, Jesus, as long as you do what we say. And that's why they demand a sign. So part of the crowd engages in blasphemy, and another part of the crowd demands that Jesus serve them. Before we move on from this, we ought to note what a sobering display this is of human depravity. This is one of the doctrinal truths that you should take away from this passage. Apart from God's grace, the human heart is stunningly hard and obstinately opposed to the truth of God. People see, but they don't see. Their hearts are so hard, they conclude that Jesus is an agent of darkness. Their eyes are so blind, they cannot see that Jesus just did the very thing they're demanding Him to do. Listen, there are many biblical passages that explain the nature of depravity. You can read Romans chapter 3 for a nice explanation of depravity. This passage illustrates it in stunning relief. And what we should note from this illustration is that evidence is not enough to make people believe. Evidence is not enough to make people into a Christian. It takes more than evidence to make someone a Christian. Just consider the crowd in these verses. They witnessed Jesus drive out a demon and they think He serves Satan. They watched Him do a sign and they demand that He do a sign. The problem's not evidence. The problem is not proof. The problem is the hardness and the deadness of the human heart. And what that means, friends, is that conversion, becoming a Christian, conversion is more than a decision. You don't become a Christian the same way you decide which car to buy. You don't weigh the pros and cons and consider what evidence would constitute the best choice for you to make. You don't become a Christian by making a decision. You become a Christian by rebirth. Conversion is an act of God. You become a Christian when God, through the preaching of His Word, takes out your dead heart and gives you a new heart that loves and trusts in Jesus. You become a Christian when God, by His grace, opens your eyes so that you can see the truth that has been there for the entire time. And listen friends, this is not a theoretical point. If you're a believer today, this is your testimony. This is is who we are. The crowd in Luke 11 is tragically blind. And so were we. So is every person who comes into this world. And therefore, as we watch the crowd oppose Jesus, this is really important, as we watch the crowd oppose Jesus, the right response is not to shake your head and scoff at how dumb they are. That's not the right response. The right response is to be stunned that God would show grace to you, a sinner, and rescue you from this situation. If we were there in Jesus' day, we would have accused him too. As we keep going in the passage, you can see in verse 17 that Jesus begins to respond to the blasphemous accusation. His response is very deliberate. And he builds up to the conclusion in verse 23. But instead of just jumping to verse 23, let's go step by step and let's see how Jesus gets there. His response is very deliberate. He begins by pointing out that their accusation, their accusation is absurd. Look at verses 17 and 18. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. So, just on the basis of logic, Jesus destroys their observation, uh, uh, their accusation. A divided kingdom cannot stand. So, if Jesus is working for Beelzebul, then that means Satan is dividing his own kingdom, which would be absurd. Satan is a lot of things, but he's not going to fight against himself. So just on the basis of logic, the accusation is false. But Jesus is interested in more than logic. He also points out how their accusation proves more than they intend. Notice verse 19. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Some background helps us here in Acts chapter 19. Luke describes a group of Jewish exorcists who tried to emulate the Apostle Paul by casting out demons in Jesus' name. You may remember that. It's in Acts chapter 19. While that's a fascinating thing to think about, the point that I want us to see is that within Judaism in Jesus' day, there were these bands of Jewish exorcists. How did it work? I don't know. But they existed. There were these bands of Jewish uh, exorcists. So Jesus' point is, If it's true that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then it's also true that your sons do the same thing. It proves more than they want, you see? You can't divide the power. If it's by Beelzebul, then it's by Beelzebul for everyone. It proves more than they want want to prove. So notice what Jesus has done. He's backed His opponents into a corner. If they insist that He is an agent of the devil, then they also accuse their own people. And if they want to go that far then the only thing they accomplish is demonstrating their unwillingness to believe and acknowledge God's power at work in their midst. I take it that that's what Jesus means when He says, therefore, they will be your judges. He's he's not saying that on the last day, these Jewish exorcists are going to uh, exercise judgment against unbelievers. That's not His point. His point is rather, if you can't see the logic of your own accusation, then even the presence of those other exorcists proves that you're blind. It judges you. All of that to say, the accusation against Jesus proves more than they want it to prove. So it's absurd and it goes too far. Then Jesus lays out the the alternative to their accusation. Notice verse 20, where Jesus puts the truth front and center. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, Jesus says, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So instead of accusing Jesus the crowd should recognize what is really happening uh, what is really happening There is no civil war within Satan's kingdom This is the systematic overthrow of Satan's kingdom This is an all-out assault on the forces of darkness. Jesus could not be clearer, friends. The kingdom of God, He says, is breaking into this age right before your very eyes. That's what Jesus' miracles reveal. God's kingdom, His redemptive rule and reign is being inaugurated in and through Jesus. That's why all of the Gospels so consistently present Jesus defeating demonic spirits, healing the sick, and subduing the creation. It's not not that Jesus simply has the power to do miracles. It's, It's much more significant than that. All of His mighty deeds demonstrate that Jesus is the King. That He's overturning the curse of sin from Genesis chapter 3. And that He's establishing God's rule and God's reign on the earth. That's the truth that the crowd cannot and will not see. Jesus isn't working with Satan. He's overthrowing Satan. He's driving him out. For Jesus alone is the King. In fact, Jesus illustrates that truth in verses 21 and 22. Look there with me. He uses a striking picture to describe his mission. Notice what he says, verse 21. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Friends, the image is of a complete victory. Jesus says that a warrior is safe as long as he is armed. As long as that warrior is armed, he's able to guard his possessions. But if another warrior comes along, a stronger warrior, he strips away the armor and he ultimately decimates That man's kingdom. Jesus' point is clear. I am that stronger warrior. That's what he's saying. I am the one who is overthrowing Satan. When When he drives out demonic spirits, it's evidence that he has stripped away Satan's armor, he has broken Satan's power, he's disarmed the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places and then having disarmed Satan, He now divides the spoils of His victory with His people. What are the spoils? Salvation. He divides it among those who believe. Instead of oppression, Jesus gives redemption. Instead of darkness, Jesus brings people into the light. Instead of bondage, Jesus gives people freedom in the Holy Spirit. You see, it's a picture of His mission. Do you see it there? Jesus is claiming for Himself absolute spiritual authority. He is the King who is decimating the forces of darkness. In the great battle of this age, the great spiritual battle, Jesus is destroying the evil one. And every exorcism, every healing, every miracle proves that Satan's power is being broken right now by Jesus Christ. That's what He's come to do. And so, you take all of that Verses 17-22, to it's absurd, it proves more than you want, here's the alternative, see the illustration of my ministry. All of that comes together in verse 23. No more illustrations, no more logical arguments, now it's just authority and power in personal, stark terms. Notice what Jesus says, verse 23, it doesn't get any clearer than this. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with Me scatters." Friends, that's as plain as Jesus can make it. He alone has the authority of God. He alone brings the Kingdom of God into this world. He alone is the fulfillment of God's redemptive promises. And therefore, you are either with Him or you are against Him. That's it. There's no middle ground. You either follow Jesus serving Him as He gathers together the people of God, or you reject Jesus, scattering people away from His life-giving presence. For or against. Trusting or rejecting. Following or opposing. There is no middle ground. For Jesus alone has the authority of God and the authority over God's kingdom. Are you with me or are you against me? And that stark contrast, that either-or reality, that takes us right into the second truth. Controversy gives way to some commentary. And in verses 24-26, to we hear a warning. A warning against kingdom neutrality. We just saw Jesus' kingdom authority. Now He's going to warn us against kingdom neutrality. In these verses... Jesus presses us to see the urgency of responding to Him. Again, follow the the flow of the passage. Verse 23 put things very clearly. You're either with Jesus or you are against Him. But the one thing you can't be is neutral. And now in verse 24 and following, Jesus tells you why you can't be neutral. Look, Look at what He says. Look at how He lays out the danger here. Verse 24, Jesus describes... An unclean spirit wandering through this world after it has been driven from a person's heart. Listen again, verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. Now, that's a pretty interesting verse, isn't it? I can't explain everything to you about what that verse means because I'm not sure. So for example, what are the waterless places? In Jesus' day, the desert was often associated with demonic activity, so that that could be the case. Waterless deserts in the Bible are sometimes used to picture the absence of God's blessing. No rain, like rain is the sign of God's blessing. No rain, waterless places, maybe an absence of God's blessing. Not entirely sure. But what is clear, whenever you're interpreting the Bible, remember we focus on the things that are clear. What is clear is that this unclean spirit that Jesus describes is restless. It's wandering around in wherever this waterless place is. And then when, he find, when the spirit finds nowhere to dwell, it decides I'll simply go back home to the person that I oppressed before. So, wandering Decides to go back. Notice what the unclean spirit finds when it goes back. Verse 25. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Now, the key to verse 25 is that there is no one living in the house. There's no one living in the house. Everything is cleaned up. The place is move-in ready, as they say. And there's no one there. So the unclean spirit was driven out But then nothing else, or we should say no one else, moved in. And that opens the door for the tragedy. Verse 26, Then the unclean spirit goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. That's shocking. And Jesus intends it to be. Since no one moved in to the cleaned up house, The unclean spirit comes back with his evil friends, and now things are worse. So what is Jesus getting at? That's the question. What's the point? Well, go back to verse 23. According to Jesus, there's no neutrality when it comes to the kingdom of God. You are either with Jesus, or you are against Him. But there is no neutrality. And here in verse 25... Jesus is telling you why that is the case. The house, in verse 25, represents the human heart. And Jesus' point is that you cannot live a spiritually empty or spiritually neutral life. You can't do it. Just like an empty house is simply waiting for someone to move in, so also an empty heart is open to the spiritual powers of this age. You see it? It's not enough to be free from the forces of darkness. It's not enough to have the house all cleaned up and in good order. You've got to put something in there. You have to put someone in there. You have to be actively, purposefully filling your heart with the truth of Jesus' Gospel. Neutrality is not an option because spiritual emptiness cannot be sustained. Your heart will be filled with something. Something. It will either be the truth of Christ's kingdom or, or it will be the darkness of this age. But either way, either way, friends, something is moving in. Now, I want to be clear at this point so that nobody misunderstands me and says something that I'm not saying. I am not saying that every person who rejects Christ is subsequently possessed by unclean spirits. That's not my point because that's not the point in verse 26. Rather, the point is that our hearts are made to be filled with something. That's the point. Your heart is made to be filled with something. As people made in the image of God, we crave meaning. We are made in order to worship. We are designed in order to give our allegiance to someone or to something. And friends, if that is not the Gospel of Christ, then the only other option is opposition to God. It's the only other option. The only other option are the rulers and authorities that we read about in Ephesians chapter 6. You can't remain neutral, in other words. You're either with Jesus or or you are against Him. The, The house of your heart is either filled with allegiance to Christ or your heart is open to capture and perhaps even domination at the hands of the world and the flesh and the devil. You can't be neutral because no one was made to live that way. So if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life, if you're not a Christian, then I am bound here to urge you to consider the spiritual reality that you are facing. It is not enough to merely avoid the worst forms of darkness in this world. It's not enough. You must actively and purposefully bow the knee to Jesus Christ in faith. Perhaps you've heard the gospel before but until now your strategy has been to to hold off thinking, I've got time. I got time and I'm not into all that bad stuff anyway. I'm I got time. Or perhaps you've heard the gospel before and your decision has been to just remain spiritually neutral in your mind. I'm not I'm not serving I'm not serving darkness. I'm not I'm not serving evil, but I'm also not, I'm not going to submit to, to Jesus either. Friends, if that's you today, then God's Word says that you are in a dangerous position. A dangerous position. There is no neutrality in the great spiritual battle of our age. There is no neutrality when it comes to the Kingdom of God. You are either with Jesus Christ actively, purposefully, consciously, faithfully, or you are against Him. That's it. Don't, mis- don't mistakenly believe that you can ride the spiritual fence and hold off until things get bad in your mind. That won't work. Right now, right now, God's Word is calling you to submit to Jesus Christ. And the way you do that is by confessing your sin and trusting that Christ alone can save. In fact, that's, that's what we learn about Jesus in this passage. He alone can defeat the powers of darkness. He alone can overcome sin and Satan and the world and the flesh. Do you see it? And therefore, God's Word calls you to trust Him. Turn from your sin and trust that Christ is mighty to save. Wherever you are today, I pray, you see very clearly that there is no middle ground. There is no neutrality in the great spiritual stakes of our Day, You were either with Christ or not. And so I just plead with you to respond. If you're not a Christian, respond to God's Word today, right now. Bow the knee in faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That emphasis on a response takes us to the third and final truth in the passage. We go from commentary to correction, and in verses 27 and 28, we encounter the call to hear the King's word. The call to hear the King's word. Very suddenly, a woman in the passage shouts out a blessing. Verse 27. As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Friends, notice that Luke says this happened as Jesus was saying these things. Do you see that little clause there at the beginning? In other words, as Jesus is dealing with the controversy and teaching about submission to His kingdom, this woman cries out. The point is that the brief encounter here with the woman in verses 27 and 28 is the conclusion to everything that's been going on. Those headings that sometimes get put in your Bible are not there by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes they break up passages unhelpfully. This is one such instance. The instance with this part with the woman is the conclusion to the whole rest of the passage. Here we find out what the right response to Jesus is. And on the one hand, the woman in verse 27 is right. She declares that Mary, Jesus' mother, is blessed which by the way is what Mary herself said would happen back in chapter 1 Luke chapter 1 verse 48 from now on all generations will call me blessed so on the one hand the woman is right because of Jesus' greatness which is clearly on display there is some blessing afforded to Mary the woman blesses Mary because of Jesus but surprisingly Jesus just blows past the blessing he 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 completely shifts the whole tenor of the conversation. He doesn't disagree with this woman, but He does change the focus. This is the key. Notice where Jesus directs our attention. Verse 28, but Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Now that should sound familiar to you. If you've been with us through our series in Luke, that should sound familiar to you. What characterized the good soil? In Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 8. Well, the good soil heard the Word of God and kept it. Who did Jesus identify as His mother and His brothers and His sisters? Luke chapter 8. He said His mother and His brother and His sisters were those who heard the Word of God and did it. So this is the consistent theme across the ministry of the Lord Jesus. The central response to Jesus is not merely to admire him. The central response to Jesus is not merely to admire him. The central response is to submit to him through his word. This is the one indispensable act in discipleship it's to hear the word of God, to believe it, and then to walk by faith in obedience to it. When you live that way, Jesus says you are blessed. So, you may agree with the woman in verse 27. There are lots of people in our world who agree with the woman in verse 27 that Jesus is a very praiseworthy person. You may acknowledge that He's significant and honorable and important and even unique. But if you don't submit to His Word by faith, then you're missing the true blessing, Jesus says. You're missing the point. It's not enough just to admire Me. It's not enough just to say, Jesus is great! You have to bow your knee to Him through His Word. You see, this is the crucial point that the crowd in Luke 11 misses. They want to argue about Jesus' mighty deeds. They want to critique all the aspects of His ministry. They think Jesus is the one who needs to answer all of these important questions, but in reality, they are the ones who need to answer. They are the ones who are faced with this crucial turning point. Will they submit to Jesus' Word or Not. Will they believe what Jesus says or will they continue to reject him? And look, friends, Jesus couldn't be any clearer here. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Who is speaking the word of God there? Jesus is. You see, he's claiming for himself identity with God. He couldn't be any clearer. Submit to his word. So as we prepare to close this morning, this is where we ought to end with Jesus' call in verse 28. And I just am going to ask you, brothers and sisters, are you hearing the Word of God and responding in faithful obedience? That's the Christian life. Are you building your life on the Scriptures? Jesus Himself is telling you here in Luke 11 that this is the pathway to true blessing. This is the central act of discipleship. We hear the Scriptures by faith, believing what God has said, and we keep the Scriptures by faith, obeying where God has called us to obey. That is the sum total of the Christian life. Hear God's Word and do it. Hear God's Word and keep it. Trust and obey, as the old hymn says. There's there's no other way for life and blessing as a Christian. So I know that we say it a lot from the pulpit. Some people have told me I say it too much. That we just say the same thing every Sunday. To which I say, yes, we do say the same thing every Sunday. Because Jesus says it. Because Jesus Himself says it. Do you want blessing? Hear God's Word and keep it. Do you want life? Hear God's Word and keep it. Do you want to follow the Lord? Hear His Word and keep it. Friends, if your discipleship is weak, there's no other recipe. Go to the Word of God and ask Him to strengthen you and believe what He says and follow it by faith. Let's be done with this approach to the Christian life that mumbles and grumbles and never goes to the Word. Let's be done with it. Let's be done with looking for something more than the Scriptures. We have nothing else to give you but the Word of God. And we're not making this up. It's from Jesus. It's in the red letters. Hear the Word of God and keep it. So do we say this every Sunday? You better believe we do. Come next Sunday, I'll say it again. Hear the Word of God and keep it. Build your life on the Bible. As one wise man summarized it for me once, read it, believe it, obey it, all by faith. That's good. And with that, the passage ends. Whose side are you on? That's the question of the text. It's really the question in all of life. Whose side are you on? And the only right response, friends, is to hear the Word of God And to do it. So, my God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, give us the grace to do just that. To believe and keep and love and treasure Christ's Word to the very end. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, help us. We confess, Lord, that we are very much prone to wander. And that when each new day of the Christian life arises, we find our hearts being pulled away to something new and shiny that seems to promise more power and more life and more results. And yet, all the while, Father, Your Word remains neglected in our hearts and minds. Help us to repent, God. Help us to repent. And remind us that repentance takes tangible action. I pray that we would be a church that hears the Word of God and keeps it. I pray that we would be a church that takes up the Scriptures believes them, and then does them in everyday life. Obeying where You call us to obey. Loving our neighbor as ourselves, Loving God. Doing good to the least of these. Help us to grow, Father. We pray. We pray that Your Word would bear fruit in our lives. We ask God very boldly that the Holy Spirit would take Your Word now. Drive it deep into our hearts and bear fruit to the glory of Christ. We pray in His name, Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me and? See-